You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. In my study this week, um, I enjoyed an hour-long presentation of a Google Talk by a theologian, pastor, um, marriage counselor guy named Tim Keller. Um, Google Talks are kind of like TED Talks, but I guess for the super, super smart people, you know, all the uh, engineers out in Silicon Valley um, that are just not only smart, but they're pioneers and they're the edge of business and entrepreneurism and so forth. And so they bring in these different speakers and Tim Keller got brought in and uh, he got to discuss uh, the topic. I go ahead and stole his name of his book, the name of his talk for my message today, The Reason for God. Uh, I'm not as smart as Tim Keller, so I'm not going to give you the reason for God. I'm going to give you uh, the call to reason for God, reason being a verb, not a noun, but he uses it as a noun. And uh, he went through um, three simple uh, reasons, like, like a rungs of a ladder, uh, for why we might believe in God. And uh, on the way, he gave all sorts of really compelling arguments. You know, one of the things he talked about was the fact that, like, um, scientists and sociologists expected that as we got more technologically advanced, uh, more scientifically advanced, that we would believe in God less. But in fact, that's the opposite is true, that in modern societies, the number of people that have, you know, believe in God um, has, uh, has stayed the same, if not increased in some, some areas. Um, he also talked about uh, just the idea of, uh, of, human, of human rights. He gave an example about, like, you know, a praying mantis uh, or some other a species that would kill their own. Uh, but... Um, but it is, like, even in a modern society like today in 2022, like, democracy is uh, limited government of the majority for the sake of minority, that, like, somehow innately, deep inside of us, even if we are atheists, that the idea of human uh, value is intrinsic in, in lots of different places. The idea of uh, moral law, that anywhere you go, that betrayal is bad and that sacrifice is good and that there's some kind of a, of a, of a code of a law of that defines good and evil, and, and then the ability of man to reach evil. He gave some really, really convincing con- and compelling arguments for, for about an hour, and uh, what was really surprising was not that he's super bright and smart and just crafted all over those arguments, was the fact that in speaking to this group in Google, you know, the top, smartest, most entrepreneurial, richest people, like, he had them on the edge of their seat. Like, they were listening to him. And not just listening to him from the aspect of, like, he had a compelling, convincing argument, but listening to him in the sense that... Um, that he was not just winning arguments in his, in his speech, that he was winning the crowd, that he was winning people. And so one of the things that Tim Keller does at the end of all of his sermons, he's a pastor in the Redeemer City Church, I think, in, in New York, is after his sermons, he'll do something that I'll never do, right? Is uh, He sits here on a stool, and then he has a Q&A session. He just lets people in his congregation just blast him with questions, atheists, anyone. And then, of course, you know, the reason why he does that is not because he's a good guy, it's because he knows philosophical kung fu, and he just waxes all over everybody. <laughs> But he had a really, really ornery guy that came up, kind of a burly dude who looked like he was sitting on a question that was really deeper than the philosophy that he was arguing. It was more, felt like it was personally agitated Then he comes up and and asks him this question and basically asked him about, you know, the presence of evil and why would God allow babies to die and something like, you know, some profound question. And, uh, And, you know, Tim Keller responded in kind and he was winsome and he was... um, he was uh, apologetic, and he was uh, understanding, and he met the guy where, where he was, and, um, and the guy kind of like did this little mic drop and like dropped off to the other side of the camera and sat down right over here, and one of his buddies like clapped to try and like stir up this controversy, and Tim Keller just kind of like gently deferred and uh, moved on to the next question. Uh, he was winning the crowd and not just winning the argument. Um, there was another guy that came up afterwards, and um, he was talking about 
this, this comic book series. He was like a Google nerd guy who was like talking about philosophy through this comic book that he wanted to bring up. And Tim Keller had read the, the comic book. As a matter of fact, anybody that brought up any arguments, not only had he read the book that the guy brought up, but also other books and referred to like an index of other books, bibliography of other books that they should read because he was so well-read and he was so thorough in his investigation to try and find the truth, not just win arguments. Um, and lastly, you know, there was a, there was a nerdy kind of Jewish guy, I think, that stood up with, with, uh, with the yarmulke on and a really, I think, the tie-dye T-shirt and the tie-dye yarmulke. And he said, you know... Um, He's like, I've just really, I don't know if I agree with all your points, but I've thoroughly enjoyed you being here. And he said, I've been working here for five years, um, and I've never um, uh, felt just intrigued uh, by a speaker as much as you. And this is the most attended uh, speaking event here at Google Talks since some sex blogger came in and talked about some audacious uh, sexuality thing that, that brought everybody into it. And so the point is, um, is, is, is apologetics uh, uh, the, the Greek word apologio, which appears in 1 Peter 3, I'll read the passage in just a moment, um, is not uh, advocated in the Bible as, as winning arguments. Like the point of 1 Peter 3 to give a defense for the faith is not to slam people. And so I'm a fan of YouTube. Like I like Ben Shapiro. He's super smart. and He's going to chop you up like a ninja too. Uh, but he doesn't care about that person he's talking to. He cares about his argument, right? Um, I mean, I love Jordan Peterson, and like he's, he's almost more neutral. Like I don't get a sense that he's antagonistic to the people he's talking about, but he's not necessarily thinking about how they're considering his point. He's just making the point. Uh, sometimes you'll see <clears throat> there's this guy that I watch, and I'm not a huge fan of, but this guy, Todd Friel, from this Wretched podcast, and he's a Christian guy, and he goes out there and, and waxes and ninjas all over people on the street who he kind of picks easy straw dummy targets, for example, but... Uh, kind of condescendingly nails them, and uh, although he does win theologically ar- theological arguments with sound theological proofs, um, I've never seen anybody get closer to Jesus because of what he's saying. Like, I don't get a sense that somebody's like, yeah, you're compelling, I want to follow Jesus now. And so uh, this is what First um, Peter does say to do when it comes to apologetics or to defend the faith, um, is to give a reason uh, for what you believe. Um, this is what it says in First Peter 3. In your hearts, it says to revere Christ as Lord. So that's really interesting to me because um, when I think of like the fear of the Lord or reverence of the Lord, usually what I think of is believe in me because I told you so, right? Isn't that kind of what you'd expect? Like revere the Lord should bring up this like impulse to like just believe in me and don't question anything that I say or don't wrestle or don't have doubt or don't whatever, right? So, but it doesn't say that. Look, it says in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord, And always be ready to give an answer to anyone to give a reason for the hope that you have. That reverence in the heart and the mind of a Christian is not just to blindly dig your head in the sand and leave your, check your head at the door and leave your doubts by the wayside if you're a really true Christian, right? Reason actually comes out of reverence. Like if you really trust God to be worthy of fear, worthy of respect, then you can trust him with your doubts, You can trust him with your questions, and you want to know the reason for your faith, not only for yourself when times get shaky, but for your kids, your kids' kids, and the neighbors that come by you are going to ask you questions, and they need to know and look look at you in the eye and know that you have a reason for what you believe in. So do this, he says, not just to win the argument, but with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. And so I think this is what apologetics means. Apologetics doesn't mean that the person that you're talking to, let's say if it's a non-believer or if it's a Christian, um, it doesn't mean that they're 100% wrong. Like apologetics actually infers that everybody has some of the story, 
that the fingerprints of God are all over our Star Wars movie and all over our Disney movies and all over the hearts of the, uh, you know, the, the quaking, the, the, the wrenching, gut-wrenching um, experience of, of the human experience of living life down here, right? And so the person you're talking to actually knows something. They're not 100% wrong. And it also means as an apologetic that you're not 100% right. That in a debate or in a discussion about who God is and what he's doing in the world, it doesn't mean you have to have all the answers. You can say, I don't know. And also, I think what it seems to say, you know, the Tim Keller example, as well as 1 Peter 3, is that in some ways, I really do think that when we're doing apologetics, when we're reasoning for the hope that we have with people that we love, they actually are kind of doing like this. Like, they want to prove that we're wrong, but they kind of want you to be right. Because if you're, if you're not right, then what is the reason for the hope? There is no hope. And so in some of their debates and their antagonism, they're actually wanting you to be right in the middle of wrong. And so anyways, the point is this, that in 1 Peter 3, it's a call not just for smart Christians or Tim Keller Christians or um, heady theological Christians, for all of us to at least be able to answer the question, why do I believe what I believe? To give an account, to have a reason for what we believe. So this whole book about Acts, right, it's about becoming a witness the types of people we are to define, you know, what a church is here to do and what a believer is here to do is to be a witness, a martus. And so, you know, I think out of the book, I've, I've picked out really three important, you know, strategies. And that is, first and foremost, um, if, if, if the world is to know Christ, if the world is to know Jesus, then one way we witness Jesus is, is through care. Like, like one of the ways that we uh, witness Jesus is through hospitality. We talked about that last week. Is, is being the hands and feet of Jesus to offer the love of God to people right where they are. And so inviting somebody over to lunch, um, showing up to their uh, basketball game, uh, you know, paying for their meal, being, being kind and offering humility, that's like a compelling way, even without speaking, to be witnessed. The second thing I think we could take from this whole book of Acts is to pray for people. One really profound way I remember Rick Warren always talking about this is like, if you do life with somebody long enough, they're going to run into a crisis. And what's going to happen through the Holy Spirit is you're going to pray for somebody long enough until you can pray with them. And now we're not just talking about the love of God or some emotional sentiment. We're talking about the power of God to move in that moment and move on their behalf. And there's something pretty apologetic about that, if we'd say so, right? But the third thing is this, is that people do, after the love of God and within the power of God, need to be able to look at us, look at us to see the truth of God that we would be able to stand and make a defense. I was looking at a great um, uh, podcast or uh, Instagram little shuffle slide thing and did all these percentages about Generation Z and, and the church and, and some of the dynamics that we're in. And it says, like, Generation Z, by this one um, poll that they did, like, wants to know the Bible. Like, this generation, you know, you know why all the anxiety and why there's so much, you know, problems and distractions? Because... The nature of the phone and really the nature of society is a degradation of authority. Like people don't know what's true. And that's super anxious because it used to be that we had an image. It used to be we had rules. It used to be we had standardized truth. And those things are in a vacuum now. And so the Generation Z in the church don't want your pithy one-liners on Twitter. They want the truth. They want the Bible. And they need to be able to look at you and me and they need to sense that down here is there's a sense of authority and wisdom that we know the truth. I mean, not we know everything, but we know what we know about Jesus. And if they get a sense from us that the reason why we believe in Jesus is because we're a certain race or because we have a good life and everything's worked out for us, if they get a sense that we don't have authority in what we're talking about, that we just kind of like make up stuff to make us feel good about ourselves and we don't actually have a reason for what we believe in, they might see the love of God, they might see the power of God, but they won't see the truth of God on display. And that's why we uh, are called to have a reason, to have a reason. So finding our spot, um, if we do have those circles in the back, uh, the book of Acts, finding our, our context for the passage in, in, in 17 here, 
1 through 8 uh, is um, the mission to Jerusalem, where we learn that uh, the gospel is portable, that uh, the gospel is the Pentecostal fire over each of our heads, and it doesn't belong in brick and mortar or old dentist offices like this one that we're standing in today, that we are the church and we carry the presence of God everywhere we go. And through the middle uh, section of the Sandwich Judean Samaria, we learn that the church is transitional, like the gospel's the same, but culture is always changing. And so every time we hit a transition, whether it's the internet or whether it's deconstruction or whatever it may be, every time we hit a transition, we're being tested. And that's the test. Is it Jesus or something else that we're following? At every transition, we're being shaken and stirred and tested. Is it Jesus plus my culture? Jesus plus my anthematic songs? Jesus plus this kind of a service? Jesus plus this leader? Or is it Jesus plus nothing is everything? That transition tests us in that. Because it's transitional, and it needs to adapt to the culture that we're in. And lastly, we're in this place of mission. That through three missionary journeys, Paul makes the gospel, or carries the gospel, from the capital of Jerusalem to the capital of the Gentile world, which is Rome. And through that, we understand that the gospel is missional. And so we should take uh, this book as we read it today, and realize the call is not to be Paul, or even to be like Paul. The call is to follow the one that Paul followed. The question is not, what did Paul do? The question is, what would Paul do if he were me, with my in-laws, with my bank account, with my neighborhood, with my zip code? We, too, are on missionary journeys. We are finishing what God started ever so long ago from Acts chapter 1, verse 8, with a few missionary moments at counters, at IHOP, at uh, Publix. You have a few moments of missionary journeys with people and strangers. We have a few missionary moments with the students that we'll have for these nine months, but we'll never see these students again. So what's God doing in this mission trip right here that's in front of you? Or we have years of missionary journeys with our cousins and aunts and uncles and fathers and kids, years and years of an opportunity for missionary journeys. I think that's what this third section is about. And so that's where we'll pick up here in uh, Acts chapter 17. So it says, as Daniel read early in verse 16, that while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed. So I don't know about you. Um, I love to travel. I love to be on vacation. If I'm uh, in Athens right now, like my buddies, you know, Silas and uh, Timothy moved ahead of me, and I was just kind of hanging out, I'm going to get a gear up. Like, I'm loving it. Like, I'm hanging out. I'm going to have the big high tube socks on because I'm becoming dad more than I'd like to admit. I'd have a big, like, you know, camera, and I'd be taking pictures of everything and just being obnoxious, being an obnoxious American. But it says while Paul was waiting, he wasn't wasting time. He was distressed. He was distressed because he saw that the, the city was full of idols. Like, it's not bad to see the Parthenon or go visit the Colosseums and enjoy art. Like, to be a Christian doesn't mean that you hate everything. It's just that you understand that underneath everything that we see in culture is idols, and we don't hate the things, but we hate the idols, and we can enjoy culture and wine and music and poetry in ways that other people can't. And so he's, he's not hating on the Roman culture, but he is distraught about the Roman idols and the cultures of the idols of every culture. But verse 17 says, but he, so, he, so he responds this way by reasoning in the synagogues with both Jew and God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happen to be there. So I'm going to steal John Stott, a commentator, quote about this passage. He says, John Stott says, as we read the first couple verses here, if we don't see what Paul saw, we won't feel what Paul felt. We think of missionary as a trip, right? But missionary is a lifestyle. And so missionary is more than a passport. Missionary is a worldview. If we don't see what Paul saw, we won't feel what Paul felt. We won't go where Paul went or say what Paul said. Does that make sense? So he's sitting there waiting, and he's not wasting time, and he's distressed. The word distressed um, it's this mixture of like anger and compassion. 
It's actually used a lot in the Old Testament for the way that God would look at his people. It'd be like if you were out in public and you saw the spouse of one of your best friends cheating on the spouse. How would you feel about that? Like jealousy is a word that's used a lot to describe God. Jealousy doesn't mean like you have a cooler car than me, I'm jealous of you. Jealousy means like something innately is wrong here and I want this person out of love and because there is rejection where there should be reciprocation, there's this this anger, right? But then it's not just a, a sense of jealousy and anger from Paul, it's also a sense of compassion. Why? Because he realizes that before he was a missionary, he was a murderer and the spouse that he's looking at that's cheating on his friend He used to be that spouse. So it's this bifocal lens, right, of of this this sense of conviction with compassion. If the world sees in Christianity a conviction without a compassion, it's just going to be arrogant. It's just people thinking that they're better and stronger and arguing you down and proving why I'm right and you're wrong, and that's not what evangelism is about. Secondly, though, it's not just about compassion without a good amount of conviction. That's your friend's wife there, right? Like, you should be stirred about that. And so I could totally see how where I'm getting euros and he's preaching the gospel, like how we got to those two places, because it all starts with how you look at the thing. So Paul's looking at it fundamentally different. He's distressed because of the idols. And so what does he do? He, he go, where does he go? And what does he do? Well, he goes to the marketplace. Like 60% in the Pew Research of Americans are not going to darken the door of a church. If they hear the gospel, it'll be from you out there, not in here. So, so and even more so, the, if you build it, we, they will come model is diminishing. Like we are not in the center of society. We are going to the margins of society when that comes to it. So you having a marketplace ministry, me having a marketplace ministry is imperative. Not just church ministry, but marketplace ministry. That's where the ministry is happening. And what is he doing? He's not arguing. He's reasoning. He is, he is, he is meeting people where they are and speaking the truth of God right where they are. So verse 18 says, here's the group that he runs into. It says, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. And some of them ask what this babbler is talking about. Others remark, he seemed to have been advocating for foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So this is my crib notes of of Epicurean. Okay, so an Epicurean uh, believes that God is somewhere out there, um, or maybe doesn't exist at all, but certainly not involved in our life. So you're going to live down here for 70 years, so have fun while it lasts. Right? So I'm thinking of Hugh Hefner. I don't know who you're thinking of, right? Your buddy, right, that you went to college with. If life doesn't matter and the gods don't care, then have a great time doing it, is the Epicurean idea. That's the idea. Is Epicurean is YOLO. It is live now. Like, live now. There's no life later. <laughs> live it up because it's all burning down. Okay, that's Epicurean. Stoic is the opposite. God is, God is, God is here, but he's, but he's distant. He's like in everything. It's this mystical idea. And so uh, the, the, the Stoic is trying to constantly evolve and master life uh, until uh, you can kind of like come out the other side of this discipline and rigor to kind of find God on the other end. How many of you guys know, you know, maybe a Stoic person? This guy, what's this guy's name? David, uh, Greg, who's the guy who's always yelling at me and cussing at me? David Goggins, is that his name? Golly. Sometimes when I'm unmotivated, the guy on YouTube, David Goggins, he's bald Navy SEAL guy, and he just keeps, like, cussing at me, calling me a girl or whatever. He's like, get out and stop whining, you know. That's probably what I would call a stoic. You know, a stiff upper lip, seeing life as something to be mastered and not to get too high and not to get too low and kind of making it happen, right? Kind of making it happen. So that's the Epicurean stoic idea. Epicurean is live now. Stoic is live later. And so, and so he speaks into this. He doesn't just ignore with his head in the sand. He addresses the cultural context 
He had, you know, and he says, he's, he, he, they said, this guy's a babbler. And so, and so Paul stands up, he doesn't keep silent, and he preaches Jesus and the resurrection. This is basically what he's saying to these guys. Y'all, Jesus is not a lofty idea somewhere out there in the sky. And he's not just a mystic thing that's hidden in the breeze. He's real, and he's right here and right now. The bodily resurrection of Jesus, this is what 1 Corinthians 15 is talking about. When he addresses the Epicurean people that are in the Corinthian church, he's like, Jesus walked through walls and people touched him. He is the first little bit of the future, the new creation. He's the firstborn and he's not the last. And Jesus was real. He is not something on a flannel graph. He's not something that your grandma talked to you about. He's a real dude that came here, has historical evidence with 500 people that have eyewitnesses that saw him live, die, and resurrect. And that means something for your life. He's not somewhere out there. He's not somewhere hidden in the trees. He's right here and he's right now. And he's real as me and you. He's made out of something real. And that means something for your life. So... Um, he goes up and continues the argument, and, he's, and they took him up and brought him up to the Robicus, this high court. Uh, it's, it, it, it's, it's this place of judiciary authority where they can make big decisions on big cases within the society, but also where politics and philosophy would, would, would emerge. It was actually called Mars Hill, which is the name of real popular churches these days, right? Or was back in the day. And so, and so Mars Hill is the name of this cultural apex where this discussion takes place. And they say to him, man... Uh, look at this new teaching that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who uh, lived there spent their time doing nothing about talking about the latest ideas. I mean, that's what happens to a country when it gets rich and affluent and influential. It doesn't have anything to do, so it just sits around on Twitter all day and just talks about ideas. This new idea and that new idea. You know what C.S. Lewis calls uh, uh, just sitting around and talking about new ideas? He calls it uh, chronological snobbery. Yeah, he just calls it just people that have too much time on their hands and they're just debating and discussing and niching each other in these subcultures and canceling each other. And we don't do that anymore, right? I'm glad we don't do that anymore. New ideas about parenting, new ideas about church, new ideas about politics. We've never seen this before. I mean, we've never seen a plague before. I mean, gosh, people, things have not come through and just wiped out whole societies. We've never gone through a civil war before. I mean, gosh, this is so new. God, what are we going to do? Are you going to fix this thing? I mean, there's division in the country. I've never seen that since 1865. You know, like... He's, it's this idea, this, this prisoner of the moment thing that, that they're stuck in, and they're constantly just, just, just got us in this trap. And maybe it would speak to us as it, as it will to them, you know, is that, is that salvation is, is, is not about uh, just the past. It's not about just the future. It is about the right here, right now. Salvation is real. And, and what we do when we follow Jesus, there, there are some of us, whether ideological or political, we say salvation's in the past. We got to get it back to the past. That's where it lives in tradition. And then there's goers, there's progressive people. Salvation's in the beginning, and in the future, in the future, in the future. And, and there's this, there's this, there's this if-then scenario, you know, that, that we preach about. Like, if we can be a church on our knees, and if we can get the generations to come together, and if we can be social justice, then we'll get into the future that God wants. And the salvation of God is right here, right now. It has already paid for our past. It's already taken care of the future. God has saved us from our past. God is saving us in the future, and he's saving us right now. And so he's running the clock. So he stands up. And he cuts to the chase. Like, here's the, here's the, I think, one of the most compelling, this is what Tim Keller even says, uh, apologetic arguments. He stands up, and notice how he says this. He doesn't address the argument. He addresses the audience. He stands up and he says, hey, people of Athens, he talks to them, not about them. I see that in every way you're very religious. I think he's on to something with this one. I see in every way you're very religious. As I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I found an inscription even that says, to an unknown God. So uh, you are ignorant of these very things that you worship. 
And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. So up on the screen, this is the basic three-pronged argument that Tim Keller gives in his Reason for God. Uh, and he talked about in Google that day is, number one, this is what he says, and I think it's a great point. One, atheism requires just as much faith as Christianity. Anybody out there that says that through science or through other dogma or through some other religion, they have evacuated the world of questions, they're lying to you. Everybody's got questions and nobody has all the answers. So this kind of like critical, cynical worldview that some atheist gets to sit in the corner and, and make fun of people that are making guesses about the, the unknown is hypocrisy because there's no leg to stand on that says that somebody has all the answers. The reality is nobody has all the answers. So you have a choice to go faith this way or faith that way, but everybody's got to choose faith. That's a great point. It's very important. He's not saying that the only option is Christianity. He's saying that there are other options and none of them are like easier or harder to get to because all of them require faith. Number two, atheism actually, and he makes the argument, actually requires more faith than Christianity. Like when it comes to historicity of Jesus, but also things like ethics and morals and, and how do you explain you know, natural law and, and, and human rights and all these things. Like it's, he makes a great case if everyone wants to do it. Number two is that atheism, you can make the argument, is actually harder to believe than Christianity. Number three, that no matter what it is that you believe in, everything requires faith, and therefore faith requires action. Like if, if I read your resume, it might be good proof of what you've done in the past, or maybe you've got somebody to sign off for you, but I don't know if you're a good worker until you work for me. I don't know until the proof's in the pudding. Everybody has to put on their shoes and go outside and figure it out through actual real life. Because here's the deal. Every human being, your neighbor, me, your kids, like when you go outside, you become a who with a what with a where and a how and therefore a why. Everybody's taking an action, which means if you go to school, why are you going to school? That's your religion. You're accountable for everything. If you got married, why did you get married? What's the reason behind that? If you voted this way or that way, what's the reason behind that? Like nobody gets to just have to abstain from the discussion. Nobody gets just to pass that says, I don't believe in anything because the second you walk outside and decided to go 30 miles an hour or 60 miles an hour, you're making a decision about what you believe. You don't get a chance to not believe in something. So the question is not if you have belief or not. The question is, is your belief sound? Is the resurrection more or less sound than the belief that you have? Because nobody gets to, nobody gets to abstain from religious decision. This is what Paul says in verse 22. Back then, I think he'd say it to this room too. I can see that everybody here is very religious. I don't care what you checked if you're Baptist or Presbyterian or Pentecostal. Everyone here makes decisions about the whys of life. Everybody here has to make a decision. So there's not a division between religious and scientific. It's just a decision, right, to, to, to trust in the resurrection or not. And so some of us, all of us go to temple. Some of us go to the gym temple, right? That's our temple. We want the Greek body, right? And we take the sacrifice, the 5 a.m. sacrifice and that stupid protein drink that we're drinking, right? And our, and our practical dignity is we put our tights on, right, in the morning and just, like, pray it into existence. That's our temple. That's our sacrifice. And that's our idol, right? Everybody's religious. Everybody's religious. Everybody has a belief. Some of us, our temple is the office. It is our quiet place away from home, where it's like actually clocking in is when you come home at five o'clock, not when you clock in at nine o'clock, because work is way easier than hanging with the kids, right? The temple is the office, and the 80 hours a week is the sacrifice, and it is telling you about what you actually believe in it matters in this world. Maybe the, the temple is the house, the, the perfect home and the perfect setup and the perfect safe, secure place. And the sacrifice is that Amazon cart, right? That hopefully y'all don't get in a fight about. 
when it's all over, okay? So, so that's the idea is that everybody's religious. This is what G.K. Chesterton says in one of his books, commentary. Every man that visits a brothel and rings the doorbell of, of a home of a prostitute is unconsciously looking for God. Everybody's religious. And so, potentially, from an apologetic standpoint, maybe the answer isn't to be so much needing to be armed with some great philosophical argument, right? Maybe it's to be armed with great relational questions. Because the person that went away to college and all of a sudden doesn't believe in what they believe anymore could be because the professor gave them a compelling argument, but might be because they slept with their boyfriend and now they have difficult trauma and heartache in their life because the boyfriend left them, right? And so now they're making religious and political decisions based on personal reasons they don't know the difference, right? Or maybe it's, it's the politics. Like, like if you go and, and actually ask somebody why they vote left or right, like go ahead and ask them seven policies that their president passed last year and, and see if they even know what the president did. Because this is not about policies. It's about paradigms like rich and poor, the rich guy, the poor guy, the powerful guy. Like what do you believe about power? That's what you're really asking about when you talk about politics. Or even theology, like what they believe about theology oftentimes has more to do with the pain and suffering that they went through or maybe if the church that they went to was nice to them or not. And they tend to follow, they believe to the people that they belong to. Right? So, so it's, we're, as creatures, we're not these great scientists and philosophers. We're children. We're children. And that's the argument that he makes, right? So he addresses both the audi- audiences in verse 24. First he says to the Epicureans, God made the world, y'all. Like, there's a God out there. You, are you paying attention? Are you paying attention to just the life cycles and the kids and the laughter? And, like, are you paying attention? Like, if there's no creator for this creation, I, it's, it takes me more faith to believe that. It would take me more faith to spend seven days down here right now and believe there isn't some kind of creator. Like, that would take more faith. You can have your faith, but I'm just saying I'm going to go with my odds on this one. I believe there's a creator. So he says the Epicureans... God made this place. God's not dead. And he says to the Stoics, God's not distant. He says, of all the David Goggins in the world, of all the people in the offices and the gyms and the the plays and the computer software and all that stuff, all the things that human hands have created, has anybody used that and actually found God? Has human hands ever sacrificed enough to get to the top of the temple to go meet God? So you're on the hook here. Like, it's harder to believe what you believe than what I believe. And so maybe potentially the search for God is actually the greatest argument for the existence of God because though people keep searching for them, they never find him apart from Jesus. Right? So that's a pretty compelling thing that people are constantly searching. This is why, because we're not scientists, ultimately. We're not experiments, ultimately. And we're not accidents. We're children. This is what he's going to argue. Rather, he himself give everybody breath and life. He's making this argument that we're like coming out of this God and we are his images. We're not just his objects. He himself gives everyone life and breathes life into everyone. From one man, he multiplied all the nations. One God, one man, all the nations come out of one place, not polytheistic. That they should inhabit the whole earth and marked out their appointed times in history and boundaries on their lands. Verse 27, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. But he's not far off. This is what he'd say the Epicureans and the Stoics. He's not far off to any of us. For in him... We live and move and have our being. For some of your own poets, like that's the thing about apologetics is that the people you're talking to, it's not like they know nothing. They just know something, not not the whole thing. He says, even your poets know this. You're not a science experiment. You know it. You're not a science experiment. You're You're not a scientist and you're not an accident. You're a child. 
Do you know why you know the difference between evil and good? Even when you continue to choose evil, you still long for good? Like, that's the thing about this world is, like, nobody is sitting here like Jafar of the Aladdin. Like, there's, like, like evil is a parasite. So it's not like somebody just gets up and says, well, I'm going to be Darth Vader when I grow up. It's that, it's that we want beauty, but we want it so much that we take it for ourselves instead of trust God for it and become the evil that beauty creates. We want so bad for success, and there's nothing wrong with it, except when we replace God for it, and it becomes our master rather than a gift. So that's the idea, is that, is that the world actually makes more sense if you believe that you're a child instead of a philosopher, because because evil is always looking for good, and people are always searching for God and never find them. And here's the ultimate point he's going to make. is the sad tragedy of that statue of the unknown God is that ultimately we can have all the knowledge in the world and not be known by God, and we'd still make the religion for the right reason. That they're sitting here in front of this temple of an unknown God, searching him and never finding him. I remember when I was a kid um, coming to, to Jesus, the purpose-driven life, Rick Warren had this quote, and I just always remembered it. Coming from a split home and divorced home, he says, long before you were conceived by your parents, you were conceived by the mind of God. Like, you could read that, and I don't care what religion you are, you know that's true. You know that's true, or at least if it was between the two paths of what I'd want to believe and if I don't want to believe, if I'm given to the, to the option that everybody has to have faith, I'd rather have faith in that. I'd rather build a society on that. I'd rather have friends like this. Like, this is the choice that we have before us. And I remember at 16 years old reading this and being like, this is what I want. Long before you were conceived by your parents, you were conceived by the mind of God. He thought of you first. It is not fate, nor chance, nor luck, nor coincidence that you are breathing at this very moment. You are alive because God created you. Not that the people, all people are born again, but all people are children of God. All people are images of God is what he's making the argument for. So he closes up the argument in verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we are God's children, we are not his science experiments, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. We're going to waste our time and hurt ourselves looking for God in created things. You're looking in the wrong spot. You can't find God in something that people created. That's not where he lives because that would not make him God. That would make you God. So you can't look in the gym and you can't look in offices and you can't look online. And you can't look in mastery and self-discipline. You can't look in these works in human design and skill. In verse 30, he says, In the past, God overlooked such ignorance but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he appointed. There it is. That the reason why, the reason why we don't find it, we won't find God in the created things, is because God is not a thing. God became a man. God had to become an image, not an icon or an idol. God is Jesus. He is the temple. He's the sacrifice. He's the priest that we need. He's the one that we long for, and probably the greatest apologetic is our search for that verifies him because he's the thing we always wanted. We don't believe maybe he exists, but he's the thing that, he's the thing that creation longs for. He has given proof of this to every person by raising him from the dead. And so part of my testimony is um, I, I, much like you probably, could go home in your journal and just write out, you know, like, when did the love of God first apply to you? I remember... Um, just how generous and kind um, and caring uh, Kyra's family was in the beginning of my faith journey. To go over to their house and to value me and see things in me and call out gifts in me. Like, you don't have to be a believer to recognize that. To, 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 to feel and, and, and sense that something about that is godly. And they got me a Bible and they put the gold thing on it. Like, I experienced the love of God. And I, I would say that you and me and our neighbors 
believers, pre-believers, or believers all need to experience the love of God. That's what we crave for. That's what we're made for. Secondly, I, I had to feel the power of God. I mean, for me, it's looked way, way different in different years, but like I remember coming to new community. It was the service on Thursday night where they didn't have a watch and how long the preacher could preach. And so he'd just wing it up there with Greek and just sing. I mean, you've ever been to a place where there's no agenda and there's just no time limit and just people were there because they wanted to be there, not because their aunt and uncle drugged them there. And there's the presence of God. Have you ever been in a place where you felt the power of God? It's not just the presence of good people. It's like the presence of God face-to-face that people need to encounter to be changed. But even more than that, I needed the truth. And so my testimony is all of these things, but ultimately I remember 1 Corinthians 13, not at a Billy Graham crusade. I'm sitting outside of Kyra's front door reading her teen Bible with the skateboarder on it back in the 90s. Like, Jesus is cool. Jesus is cool. He walked in waters. He could do ollies too. Rock on. (laughs) And... um, Jesus doesn't gossip. It was like the little bubble on the side, and it was trying to tell me not to gossip. And then it said, like, you know, love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. doesn't boast. It's not self-seeking. It's not rude. And what C.S. Lewis says about that moment is that I was tasting for something I longed for that didn't actually fully reveal itself in this place. It was, it was something else, somewhere else that I needed that I longed for. And that echo back to my human nature, the thing that, that was craving up inside of me was pointing to its solution, that I couldn't find it ultimately in video games and girls and basketball and all the things, that I needed to find it somewhere else in this created world because this created world could not provide for the appetite that I had. And so this is how he explains it in Mere Christianity. It says, the Christian says, uh, Christian says that creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction of those desires exist. Like, I can't be hungry for something. I can't be hungry for something in this place that doesn't exist. I mean, like, he goes and explains it, right? So a baby feels hunger because there's such a thing as food. Like if this world makes any sense at all, is that hunger is met by its fulfillment. A baby is hungry and therefore there's food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there's water. Men uh, feel sexual desires, well, there's such a thing as sex. And if I uh, in myself desire something which has no experience the world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Like, it's our humanness, it's our hunger, it's our search for God that actually proves him best. Because we're not science experiments, and we know it. We're humans, we're children, and we want a father. And so, if, no one, if none of my earthly pleasures satisfy, satisfy it, that does not prove, um, doesn't that, that just prove that the universe is a fraud? Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or, or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desires for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. I love the analogy that um, uh, Matt Chandler will use sometimes at, at the village church, you know. He's like, that's the sad thing about atheism. Like, everybody has a choice about what they believe in. The saddest thing is is to work and toil and get the steak and glass of wine and you eat the steak and you drink the wine and that's the end of it. Like to come to the end of the best things that this world can offer and know that it doesn't satisfy you shows you our search for God. But Christians don't travel or drink or eat the way that atheists do because they know that the gift was just meant to point to a giver. And so you have two people enjoying the same exact thing but for different purposes and therefore in completely different spaces when it comes to temple and sacrifice and priests. And so I I feel that ultimately when we engage being a witness here in Greenville, 
you know, in 2022 is that really we're not so much in these days introducing people to Jesus. Like if you gave a poll to these Epicureans, they probably never strung the five letters together. But if you go out to the ravaged person on the street in Greenville, they've heard of Jesus before. But maybe we would suggest maybe just a different version or a wrong version of Jesus. That ultimately the people in Google, when they were rejecting God and they gave up the arguments, they kind of revealed themselves. They weren't actually rejecting the Jesus that Tim Keller was projecting. They were rejecting the Jesus they thought he was presenting. They they weren't even given an opportunity to reject the real Jesus. And so I think as missionaries, what we'd see with Paul, again, is not to do what Paul did, but to follow who Paul followed. If we don't see the world like Paul saw it, if we see it as this like bipolar, yin-yang, good and evil thing where we're just like swinging at the wind to try and get all the atheist people to think like us, like we might miss it. He saw the world covered in idols and he understood that underneath in the heart that Jesus is the desire of nations. And that ultimately presenting and representing Jesus has to come out of both conviction and compassion. If we don't see people belonging to Jesus, then we're polytheists. Non-evangelism is, is, is basically a practical way of practicing polytheism. Because it means that my God's good for me, but it doesn't necessarily mean he's good for you. You must have another God that might be better than mine. Jesus, is, he says to the Epicurean, he's king over it all. And a proper apologetic is evangelism because it believes that God's not just the God that helps me enjoy my life better. He's the king over this world. He's the king over this world. I love uh, Tim Keller in, in his sermon about um, uh, the reason for God. He, he, says, he says that oftentimes with practical agnosticism for Christianity, it says like we go to the party and we believe that Jesus just helps us enjoy the party better. He is basically our serotonin verse that handles our, enthousi- our, our anxiety for dealing with large groups of people, right? Like he's an, he's an anesthetist. He anesthetizes us. Okay, but that's not that. But Christianity is not saying Jesus is here to help you have a better, better time at life, a better time in the party. Jesus changes the way you see the entire party. Jesus changes the way you see every guest of that party, and actually helps you see that there's actually 80 people at that party, not just 50, because there's a bunch of people that you weren't looking at because they were voiceless, right? And, and it helps you open your eyes to what's going on. And so seeing and feeling like Paul felt helps us go and say what what Paul ultimately said. And so here's the, uh, the intentional question. I want to close with this last verse. It says, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, there's three responses, just like with Jesus. In Luke and Matthew and John, there's always positive, negative, and neutral. And so the first group of people, they sneered. They sneered at him. And, and we need to be ready in evangelism. Some people are red lights. They're going to sneer. And in order to find those people that are green lights, we'll need to be great with the rejection of those that sneer. So there's sneer people. But others said, we want to hear more about what you have to say about the subject. In verse 33, at that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. So they were believing people. They were sneering people. They were questioning people. They were believing people. And among them was Dionysius. And they always say the names to remind us this is not just about numbers. It is about family members. A member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Demarius, and a number of others. And so these are my intentional questions. I actually didn't put them on the screen because I was... uh, behind the eight ball this morning, I suppose. But um, um, the question I think that I would ask to our culture, our moment of people that sneer or the sides of us that sneer. Like I think that some of us, we're complicated people and there are sides of us that in our heart of hearts, even if we were to watch our actions and where we spend time at the gym, there are parts of us that sneer at the resurrection, that believe there's freedom somewhere else. 
and to preach to that person and to us, if you don't believe in the resurrection, what do you believe in? There is no amnesty from belief. You got to believe in something. So how is that going? And can you show me that, that your temple, your sacrifice is greater than the resurrected tomb? You're on the hook. What is it that you believe in? And why do you believe what you believe? Number two, number two, that for those that are listening, what Paul is saying is that the resurrection is a real thing. There are eyewitness accounts of people that saw him and grabbed him. He ate fish when he resurrected. He's got a real body, and that's our future if you believe in the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 says if you, don't, if you can add up your life and your life makes sense without the resurrection, then you're, you don't believe in Jesus. You should live your life that would be counted foolish if the resurrection doesn't exist. So here's the deal. The resurrection is real, so here's a, a legal prayer. The legal prayer that you could pray if you are on the fence about this thing is, Jesus, if you're real, show me. And I've heard tons of testimonies about this, that, that, that like God is, is, is actually meeting you in your doubt. So you presenting your doubt to him is a healthy thing. As long as you're fair, as long as you're earnest with the fact that there is no such thing as a faithless life, if you say, Jesus, if you're real, you'll show me, he will show you. He will reveal it to you. And second, and lastly, if you are a believer, to ask yourself, and maybe ask your, 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 your spouse or your friends and talk this through and maybe read Mere Christianity or reread it or read The Reason for God or other apologetic works that you, can, uh, that you can find. Why do you believe what you believe? And maybe it's the problem of evil. Maybe it's human rights. And maybe it's the people's search for God. But but this, I think, is our prayer that we would not only celebrate Paul and honor Paul and, and Tim Keller's and people that um, have been on the frontier of uh, speaking the truth of God to people right where they are, but that we would pray for those four things, to see people the way that Paul saw them, to feel the way that he felt, to go where he went, to say what he said. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.